Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I was the most grassroots thing you could possibly imagine. I was there at the freaking 7-Eleven, putting up posters. They'd get ripped down. Go back the next day, put them up. I was on the radio station every morning at 8 a.m. I mean, this is KTKE, which is like where the radio station was in the back of like a barbecue joint. And, and I was there trying to explain, yeah, yoga, music, nature. I got it at least that simple. Yoga, music, nature. You get that? People are like, huh, what? Yoga and music and nature? I don't get it. But I did that, you know, for 50, 50 days or something. And then the night, Michael Franti, who was our headliner, and the night before his headlining show, first year, first year festival, first is appendix. Hey friends, welcome back to the At the End of the Tunnel podcast. In this episode, you're going to hear from someone who began his journey in the music industry. And through an unlikely series of events, one being having an office just a few blocks away from the former World Trade Center in New York in September of 2001, that experience led him to become one of the first to bridge the gap between yoga, wellness, and music. His name is Jeff Krasno. And you may have heard of the worldwide movement that he started many years ago called Wanderlust. Well, Jeff is going to take us through that journey as well as how it evolved into his more recent movement, which is called One Commune. And just a heads up, our interview is just a little bit longer than usual because Jeff is such an amazing storyteller. And as I was listening to his story, I found it to be such a a relevant example of how pretty much all of the so-called random events that we experience in life, stuff like getting bullied as a child to being a pothead as a young adult to making and selling homemade guacamole at random bluegrass festivals. These kinds of moments, when we look at them in hindsight, are almost always contributing something along our path that we're going to eventually use later on to be of service in some unexpected way. And Jeff's story just kept going to all of these remarkable places that ended up circling back around to the founding of Wanderlust. And I wanted you to experience all of it in context. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce you to the venerable Mr. Jeff Krasno. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. As always, I like to start these conversations by talking about childhood. And so the question that we'll kick it off with is, can you recall what your favorite toy or activity was as a child? Hmm. Well, I was super into Batman. 
Mm-hmm. And I was living overseas most of my childhood. So when I was in Brazil, I think it was Batman. And <laughs> yeah, I would dress up as Batman. I have one younger brother. He wasn't born yet at that point. So it was kind of just me and my, my parents. And we moved around a tremendous amount. We moved, I think, 11 times before I was seven or eight. So that was a very diverse, cultural, peripatetic kind of youth all over Europe and and then in South America and in Brazil, mostly moving around uh, to a bunch of different places in Rio. But yeah, that's the most coherent memory I have. And then I think that there was another cartoon character called Speed Racer. I was really into that too. My father worked for the Ford Foundation in Rio. And the Ford Foundation was responsible for bringing Sesame Street to Latin America. So that was one of his jobs, He, you know, to bring like Grover and Big Bird <laughs> and, uh, and Kermit and that cast of characters to South America, you know, have those things originally translated into Portuguese, into Spanish, but then they became localized themselves and they were producing down there. So that was a fun experience. If I could talk to to little six or seven-year-old Jeff, what would he say was so appealing about Batman? Why, Why Batman? Yeah, I mean, that's a fine question. I think that there's gotta be a superpower component to it that, you know, Batman was not confined to the same rules and regulations of, of the normal human condition. And I also think that he, uh, he got to dress up in this <laughs> fantastic outfit and wear a cape and wear a mask. And, and that was the other thing. When I look back, there's a whole series of photos of me as a young kid, both in Spain and in Brazil, dressed up as a torero, this kind of matador outfit where, you know, I had the whole outfit and the hat and the cape. So I think there was, you know, a a dress up component to it that seemed pretty appealing at that time. I'm sure the car didn't help. I mean, didn't hurt either, right? The The Batmobile. (laughs) The Batmobile. Yeah. I had a lot of those kind of cars, you know, Um, that was a big thing, you know, that whole, it was like Tyco or whatever had all of those trucks and cars i had a lot of those i'd like to like smash them up quite a bit as a suppose a typical young boy is apt to do Tell me a little bit about the moving around. What was that about? I know you said your dad worked for the Ford Foundation. So it sounds like you were a child of the world. I know you you, you speak French now. I don't know if that's something you learned back in those days or what, what was that? What was your childhood like in terms of your family dynamic and, and whatever that was causing you guys to move around? Yeah. The French I actually learned later in life when Skylar and I, we moved to Paris mid-college, but certainly the kind of neuroplasticity, I think, had, or, or the, the rivers in my brain that 
I think made me fairly adept at picking up languages was developed when I was a kid. My dad was a Fulbright professor, so he was essentially getting grants to to teach psychology first at the University of London, and then um, in Spain we moved to a little town called Santiago de Compostela, which is beautiful old town. So, you know, just, I guess, to rewind, I was born in Chicago on Thanksgiving Day at the Lying In Hospital, which was at the University of Chicago. That's Um, where I was born. No, really? Yeah. Yeah. Three years later. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my parents grew up in Chicago, just outside of Chicago. They both went to Evanston Township High School and were, you know, high school sweethearts. I got married really young, as was the custom back in that day. And they were finishing at Stanford. So then we moved to, to Palo Alto and then, and then we moved overseas. And we ended up, my dad was teaching, got the Fulbright grant to go to the University of London. We actually moved up to the Lake District in Northern England, which was very, very rural. And, uh, we rented this kooky, amazing, property that was, you know, property of the queen. I think everything up there in some way was property of the queen. And it was bucolic in the sense of, you know, it was the reality was like, go outside and, you know, pick blackberries and come in and make jam. And I was really into like cement mixers and like, you know, working around the property. There's a ton of photos of me, like every photo of me has a shovel. I was just like, (laughs) love the shovel. And I had a little tiny miniature horse called Maybe. And so I, uh, <laughs> um, just because I couldn't name it and people were throwing different suggestions to me. And my response was always Maybe. So it just became Maybe. And then, yeah, moving to Spain and then Brazil. And it was wonderful from the standpoint of kind of opening me up as a child to other cultures, certainly other languages. So you were fluent in Spanish and fluent in Portuguese? Yeah, at a really pretty young age. And, you know, part of it is certainly the the supple, absorbent mind of a young person tends to soak in language quickly. But I, I think that there was another piece of foot, which is that, you know, as a kid, I just wanted to fit in. And, you know, that was the difficult part is that, you know, we were bouncing from location to location. I'd have to quickly sponge in fluency around a new language, you know, start a new school. And then six months later, we'd be in another Place. Do you remember finding that exciting or do you feel like that was a hassle and you kind of didn't look forward to it as a kid? Well, it was, I suppose, exciting, although I didn't really know any better at that juncture. I think that was what I just thought life was about. You just kind of tag along <laughs> with your parents. You know, I was also a chubby kid, mm. significantly chubby. And so when we moved to Rio, I had some difficulty there just because... I was five or six years old. I had a like paunch belly that would kind of hang over, you know, the belt of my (laughs) jeans and my, you know, thighs would 
chafe enough to kind of, <laughs> you know, create some kind of thread bareness on the denim, you know, that, that, that kind of, and I was teased, you know, quite a bit. And so there are a couple of incidents that stick out that I remember quite clearly. Can you talk about those? Yeah, yeah, I can. I went to the American school in Rio, in Gavia, which is a lovely part of, of Rio. And I think I was five or six. And there was a school bully, kind of a playground bully, named Babito. And <laughs> the, uh, um, of course, it's like central casting, right? And <laughs> the mix, the student mix at the American school was kind of a smattering of foreign nationals, Americans, but mostly Brazilians, mm -hmm. uh, mostly Brazilian families that, you know, wanted their kids to speak English. So the classroom itself, kind of the, the linguistic currency was English, but the playground was strictly Portuguese and a very particular kind of slangy Portuguese known as carioca, which is, mm -hmm. you know, native to Rio itself. So, you know, there was this, this playground slang and camaraderie that existed really amongst the Brazilian kids. And there was one ritual on the playground that most all the kids partook in in some way, but I sort of assiduously avoided it. But there was a sloped area of the playground. And this ritual would be like the kids would run along the grass as they came upon the slope. They'd kind of hurdle themselves forward and land on their butts and sort of skid down this hill, mm -hmm. you know, to the point that after time, there was sort of a dirt landing strip sort of <laughs> developed over time mm -hmm. um, just for, from use. And Babito was kind of the main conductor, kind of orchestrator of this <laughs> ritual. And he'd get everyone queued up and whatnot. And I was always off to the side because my physique did not lend itself well to hurtling myself down the hill. I was not accustomed to sort of that sort of nimble, dexterous movements. But one particular day, I summoned enough confidence to get in the line and kind of just sort of tentatively approach the hill and launch myself forward and land on my butt. And, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't going to set any distance records, but I managed to get down the hill with a couple of cheers of Americano, you know, like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I kind of trudged back up the hill, kind of now brimming with a little bit more confidence and cued back up and sort of like tightened my belt a notch and sort of pulled my polo down <laughs> over my belly. Mm -hmm. And this time with more verve made the approach, I kind of launched myself forward, landed, and then heard this sound that echoed that stopped all other phenomena. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how sort of the brain can process sound into material reality very quickly. And I immediately knew that I had ripped 
my <laughs> jeans <laughs> down my ass crack all the way. <laughs> and kind of what's more, I as was the custom back then, and you probably uh, back me up, is that there wasn't like boxer briefs or anything. <laughs> no. I had tidy whities That's right. just what you wore. That's nothing else. Right. And I had ripped my pants to such a degree that my tidy whities now had taken up a deep brown stain <laughs> yeah. from the dirt landing strip. Yeah. And of course, this sent <laughs> our good friend Bobito into paroxysms of joy <laughs> and, and laughter. And he started a, a playground-wide refrain, the American <laughs> shat his pants, the <laughs> which echoed kind of over and over. And I stood there at the bottom kind of of the hill sort of with deep embarrassment and oh kind of self-loathing and biting my lip, you know, eyes welled, not trying mm -hmm. not to burst into tears and immediately sort of into fight or flight <laughs> mode or, or in this case, sort of trying to angle myself most appropriately. So to limit the availability right. to my shit stained underwear right. <laughs> um, and, and kind of sh shuffled off the playground and kind of limped into the nurse's office and complained of some ailment. Made, um, right, made up ailment so you can go home. Made up ailment. Yeah, of course. She was like, oh, that headache must have made you shit your pants. <laughs> I was like, no, it's not that. Like, and my mother, you know, was summoned and, you know, dutifully picked me up. And I kind of remember that sort of walk of shame back across the <laughs> playground with my backpack sort of awkwardly slung low right. on my back, you know, in an attempt to kind of camouflage this awful accident and, you know, getting into the car with the sort of last fading refrains of the American Shadis pants. That story became really emblematic of my childhood and kind of later in life, more recently, as I've done some kind of psychological excavation into my own life and trauma and psychoses or what have you. You know, there was this kind of thirst to fit in when you're a child. It's hyperbolized, I think, when you're a kid. Because, you know, you've come out of the womb, you know, from a place of utter, complete unity. And then, you know, your umbilical cord is severed and, and your life trudges slowly towards separation. And all you want is that feeling sort of of oneness, you know, and, and to be held and to, uh, to belong, to be loved. And so off you go. And, you know, life is beautiful and cruel. And in my particular case, I just didn't have any friends because we were moving so much. You know, my friends, my only friends were my parents and they were also busy. So really that quest to fit in and really to assimilate was a huge part of growing up for me. And I didn't have the tools to recognize the difference between 
fitting in and belonging. You must have gotten good, though, I would imagine, at, you know, because you, you could take that incident and you could literally put that on any playground in the world. And you would have the same characters and you probably would get the same reaction from the kids. There would be the Babito character, you know, whatever his name would be, depending on the culture you're in. And so you must have gotten really good at, at sort of reading the landscape and knowing who the people were that you wanted to befriend first and who the bullies were and who the, you know, the whole kind of political dynamic of the neighborhood and of the schoolyard. Oh, yes. There were the, the Jungian archetypes were recognizable quickly, <laughs> particularly the shadow archetypes, you know, yeah. you know, the bully, the outsiders, the outsiders. And then of course, you know, there's the nurturing nurse and, and all of the, you know, sort of characters that sort of make up, you know, this bigger play. And, you know, I, I think that in retrospect, I, I did a lot. My life was very dominated by strategies to fit in and in some ways to change who I was in order to feel a sense of acceptance and also not really knowing who I was because was I Spanish? Was I Brazilian? Was I English? Was I American? I don't know. What was my native language at that juncture? I didn't really have one. So, mm. I mean, I spoke Portuguese much better than I spoke English by the time, mm. you know, we were in Brazil for three years. So, you know, I think there was a sort of like questioning of identity. And obviously now that like I have, I suppose, some more sophisticated tools to kind of psychoanalyze myself or do some personal inventory and, you know, part of me is very critical of my younger self, kind of the self-loathing, always seeking the approval of others, kind of defining myself through what other people thought of me. Part of me is like, well, why didn't, you know, you just have the self-esteem, the sense of your own identity, not to care about that stuff. But of course, you know, you can't expect that as a child. And I was just using the tools that I had as my survival mechanism, you know, mm -hmm. my tools were like, okay, I know how to be a chameleon. I know how to speak all these languages, even just, this is a podcast, so it doesn't lend itself perfectly to visual techniques, but you've seen me just what I look like. I look mm -hmm. like I could be almost from anywhere. It's like my <laughs> skin colored completely belies my genetics. I'm like, five shades darker than anyone in my family. <laughs> and in a way, it's like I somehow cultivated this persona or this ability to chameleonize myself to be almost anyone from anywhere mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, and I don't want to skip over it too much, but because there's a lot of points along the way. But I remember when I was maybe 40 and I got into a cab with my daughters and I recognized on some subconscious level that the cab driver was Jamaican and immediately took on an accent of like, take me uptown, man. <laughs> and like, you know, he's looking at me 
completely confused and somewhat pitifully. <laughs> and my kids are looking at me like horrified and embarrassed. And I'm like <laughs> examining myself of like, holy shit, I just take on the affect of anywhere that I am because <laughs> all I want to do is connect. All right. I want to do is fit in or belong. And again, I think in retrospect, it gave me very useful tools mm. because in the end of the day, my whole life, the common thread of my entire life has been about building community, about fostering mm. community from my days in the music business to Wanderlust to Commune. And uh, so, you know, I, I think that these are, in some ways, it, it's easy to look at character defects to be very self-critical. Sure. And, and I am. And then I've also learned how to show myself some empathy and and realize that often we're just doing things, we're, we're using and leveraging the tools we have to best survive. So when you look at your childhood as a, as a one experience, how would you, what would you, how would you describe that experience in its totality in terms of like mental health or just the way, and I'm not talking about the adult Jeff looking back as a yeah. child, but as, as a child, when you were actually maybe about to graduate from high school or whatever, what, how would you describe what you were about to leave behind when you were going to Columbia University? Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Yeah, well, there was an inflection point in my life that was noticeable in and of its time. So essentially, I carried around the persona of the fat kid. Mm. for until I was 13. And I had friends. I mean, I don't want to paint 
like a big pity party on your show. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I had friends and I was doing playing tons of sports and, you know, doing well in school, you know, so, and I moved to Connecticut at, at this juncture after a whole bunch of other layovers, if you will. Uh, we lived in DC and Miami and, but then we kind of put down some roots and and I was doing okay, but there was this, you know, I was always essentially like the fat kid, the fat friend. That was my persona in life. That was the character, the script that I had. Mm -hmm. You know, I had friends that were going out with all the popular girls, and I was kind of on the periphery of that and liked. And But, you know, I was always that character. And when I was 13... I developed this tumor on my knee and it turned out to be a malignant tumor. And there's mm -hmm. a whole long convoluted and complicated story around that piece of my life. But I ended up in the pediatrics ward at Sloan Kettering, which is a cancer hospital in New York, a very mm -hmm. well-known cancer hospital. And I was 13, so I could have been put in an adult ward I could have been in pediatrics, but basically I was just trying to find a bed to have this procedure as quickly as possible. So the bed that was available was in pediatrics. Mm -hmm. And pediatrics at Sloan Kettering is generally a one-way street. I had a fibrous histiocytoma. This was like a relatively not particularly serious, relatively topical tumor. Yes, it could have metastasize it could have gotten worse but in comparison to everybody else in that ward i mean we're talking terminal you know mm -hmm. we're talking eight-year-olds weighing 30 pounds with terminal leukemia kind of stuff and i had a roommate during my tenure there who did pass away mm. so coming out of the other side as i was literally wheeled out of of Sloan, you know, I was a new human and I suppose I became like an adult, but I didn't really have a lot of self-awareness. I just kind of realized on some level that I was lucky mm -hmm. and I came home. There was a quite a significant recuperation period at home and my parents decided that it was best for me to go away to boarding school. They were not satisfied with the level of education that I was getting kind of at the public schools where we lived. And of course, I fought this with every ounce um, of energy that I had to the point where I think I smashed a few windows and they retreated <laughs> and let me back in public school for a week until I made my own decision to actually leave, which I did do. But through the process of the recuperation from, you know, my, my medical ordeal, I had lost a ton of weight, a ton of weight. I was now skinny person, but I saw fat Jeff. I just, right. that's who I was, you know, mm -hmm, that's it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I went away to a board, this boarding school called Hotchkiss. It was up in Northwestern Connecticut. Beautiful, incredible place. And you know, in the second week of school there, like, I mean, to be crass, like I had 
all the hot girls like right. all over me. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> why, why me? Like I'm the fat guy, you know? And, uh, um, and my life totally changed around. And in some ways, that were kind of scary and dangerous. So, you know, I kind of got into sort of a fast scene with like kind of this international New York jet setty wealthy scene niche. But, you know, I was, you know, for a couple of years, sort of the king of the world. And it changed my whole outlook and my whole identity around myself. And I became much more confident, just had a lot more self-esteem, and that was a big inflection point. Talk a little bit about music, man. What was your experience with music when you were growing up? Yeah. It was a major part of my life. My grandfather was a cardiologist and quit cardiology to become a gypsy violinist at around in his late 50s, which wasn't the most fiscally responsible decision. <laughs> um, right. But he was just passionate. I mean, just absolutely consumed with music. He'd play all day, every day, any gig didn't matter. And so, and he played, you know, gypsy, gypsy violin. So it was highly emotional, bordering on schmaltzy, but technical and often instrumental. That was very influential to have a musician, you know, in the family. And then my dad was very talented, just naturally. He never kind of applied it to the development of a lot of technique, but I would say his spiritual well was deeper than his technical well. But he, uh, but music was around and on the weekends, my house was always, and this was in Connecticut, so it was maybe 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, that, that kind of age. And my parents' house was kind of the, the epicenter for the neighborhood party scene. And there was a lot of musicians in the neighborhood and on a regular Friday, and Saturday night, folks just sitting around drinking beers, playing music. That was very, very normal. Yeah, and I, I, it was just around me. And, and I suppose, I, like, my approach to learning languages was a musical approach, was a sonic approach. It wasn't a more ped pedagogic sort of vocabulary approach. You know, I was listening to sounds, processing sounds and connecting sounds to meaning. I wasn't studying and learning them out of a textbook. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that helped give me, you know, some sort of a ability. My, I think it helped develop my ear. And so, yeah, I was always playing, you know, playing mm -hmm. music and in high school and then in college, I got, you know, more serious about it and happy to talk kind of more about that. But yeah, it was, it was a very big part of my life. And, you know, my brother became a professional musician and mm -hmm. I ended up managing him for 12 or 13 years. So you ended up going to Columbia. That's where you met Skylar, correct? Yeah, we did. We met in freshman year. We were in the same dorm, which was McBain, which was, I would call it the fringe 
accommodations <laughs> at Columbia. <laughs> and yet we met in art class. And it sounds a little corny, but I had an epiphany in this art class mm-hmm. about her. And it was, I don't think I've ever talked about this, but we had a very, very straight laced art history teacher that had kind of this short gray bob and she was quite severe and angular and, you know, always wore like fitted pantsuit. And I was like pretty much a stoner at that juncture. And so (laughs) those things were, did not mix well. And I was kind of always in the back of the classroom, avoiding her penetrating stare with every kind of ounce of energy that I could muster. And Mm -hmm. Skylar was in that class and she was a dancer, a very serious dancer at that juncture. And she would come in in these kind of talky leotards and always late because she must have had a class that kind of bumped up against it and sit, you know, kind of adjacent to me mm-hmm. and always pull out a grapefruit and peel it in class and peel back the layers and send grapefruit droplets out <laughs> into the world. And I remember there was a Bernini sculpture, which I believe was the ecstasy of St. Teresa that would get, you know, what was her name? Miss McCoo or something? I don't know. But she would put these slides up, you know, and then she would talk about the piece of art on this big slide. And yeah, so she put this Bernini sculpture on. And if I, if I remember correctly, this is a an angel taking an arrow and holding it as if to penetrate the heart of St. Teresa who's kind of lying back in a state of spiritual ecstasy and epiphany. And yeah, I had this kind of strange vision that like I was this angel and I was abducting, you know, this young saint who was Skylar. <laughs> it's mm. totally wacky. You guys were dating at that time, I'm assuming. No, no, no. You? This was before we were dating. This is, <laughs> oh, you this just... is before we were dating. And I was like, and then I became something like infatuated with her kind of through this vision and would sort of sheepishly in my burnt stoned way kind of, you know, trail her from a distance. Uh, I mean, not anything weird, but just was, uh, I was just enamored with her. She did not walk with her feet on the ground. She kind of floated, um, floated around and she was um you know she was a northern californian transplant grew up on a commune up in uh sonoma county and kind of had this like kind of a hippie sophistication around her that i was just like completely enamored with and really pursued her in all humility the all you can eat buffet was amply stocked for me at that juncture as far as potential female mates. But, you know, I just was not interested in Sydney from Sydney, or I remember Nareet 
who was became like this really wonderful park ranger. There was a marine biologist, but no, anyways, I was not interested in any of these beautiful, talented women. You know, Skylar was it for me. And so there was like a long period of chivalry and pursuit <laughs> that I engaged in full of tribulations and whatnot. And, and Skylar comes from a family, a relatively well-known family of strong, single women. She was not interested in a mate, getting married, having sex. None of these things were of interest to her. <laughs> um, so I suppose I would categorize it as my longest and greatest conquest. <laughs> Were you thinking in terms of marriage at that time when you were in college? Well, you know, it's funny. My parents actually went through a very, very disruptive divorce that lasted like eight or nine years, to be honest, and didn't finish until I was basically an adult. And my brother and I ended up staying with my dad, which was pretty rare at that juncture. So in retrospect, I'm not sure if I was looking for a girlfriend or a mother <laughs> or some sort of combination of both, but I certainly hurdled an unrealistic complement of archetype expectations on Skyler. <laughs> Everything from like, be my mother offering your nurturing breast and also, you know, be a feminist breadwinner and also be my sexual partner but she, in her amazing versatility and adeptness, somehow fulfilled all roles. But yeah, you know, I, I, I could have gone the other direction of like, eh, like marriage, commitment, that stuff just doesn't work out. But I didn't. I went the other way. And, you know, we've been together for 32 years. Right. So, so now we're in college, Jeff. You're no longer fat, Jeff. You now are athletic. You're musical. You're smart. You're dating beautiful woman. You may even get married to one day. What's your mental health state like at this point? And what are you thinking about for career and you know your contribution to the world? Not much. So I was, as I alluded to briefly when talking about art class, I was a full on stoner at this juncture in my life. And I was also making an income from it. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Courtesy of the Columbia University football team, which if you remember back in those days, did not have stellar results. Right. Um, so I might take some credit for that. <laughs> but um but yeah, they, they bankrolled my interest in music. And so at this juncture, I became absolutely obsessed with the banjo. And I um, played as much as I possibly could before class, in between class, after class. I became a DJ on uh, WKCR, which was and remains actually a very, very respected and, and prominent college radio station uh, in New York City. At that juncture, 
It was transmitted off the top of the World Trade Center. That's no longer there. You know, so it had a significant signal and it was known largely as a jazz station that had this incredible guy named Phil Schapp, uh, who, who kind of ran the radio station and was a jazz aficionado like no other and wrote many of the liner notes for Columbia and, um, for Columbia Records, actually, and, and a lot of, uh, for Miles Davis's records and knew kind of every alternate take of everything. But, um, and he became a little bit of my mentor and then hooked me up with this show called Moonshine, which was a traditional American music show that aired every Sunday from 10 to 12. And I was the DJ on that show. And I put together a traditional American band, like a bluegrass band, basically played bluegrass and old time music. And then I met this guy, Bela Fleck, who became very, very influential. And I, you know, followed him and got lessons from him, got lessons from his teacher named Tony Trishka. And I just was absolutely consumed by music. And the radio station gave me just enough stipend to go on the road with an old school tape recorder and often with my band and with Skylar, who did not show a lot of initial interest in bluegrass, but she, uh, she definitely came around. And we would go th- drive through the South, through North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, and go to bluegrass festivals. And oftentimes I'd book my band as like the first of 20. You know, we would play like 8.30 in the morning, you know, while there was nobody there. But that got me backstage. And I got an opportunity to interview kind of all that first generation bluegrass folks, Bill Monroe, Earl Scruggs, J.D. Crow, Ralph Stanley. Can't even believe those names, right? And boy, I mean, what a crazy culture. So let me, let's hit pause for just a second. All right. So I want to understand when this is all happening. Are you still in, still at Columbia when this is happening or is this post graduation? Yeah, this, this is still at Columbia. I'm a student at Columbia, but really okay. my, but my main interest is not being particularly academic. So Columbia is not exactly a community college, right? So you, you have to like have some academic skills to get into Columbia in the first place. I'm assuming the course load it's got to be somewhat demanding. You're obsessed with the banjo. You're dealing drugs on the side. <laughs> you're, you're with this woman. You're stoner, you know, you're stoner in these art classes. Who are your biggest supporters at this point? Was your granddad still around, the gypsy violinist? Or who's, who, who's like outside of your mentors in the music world? Who, who, who among your family and friends and, and uh, yeah. the people that were around you, who was who like saying, hey, Jeff, this is what – or, or were you having to not tell a lot of people what, about what you were doing because you were you, you knew that they were going to disapprove? Yeah, I, I didn't have a tremendous amount of – there was not a lot of discipline in my life. Or I would say there's not a lot of disciplinarian – no one played that disciplinarian role. You know, my dad at this point, after my parents got divorced, kind of was holding down a pretty prestigious job, but also – rocking party central at the house and I would roll out there with tons of friends and we had this whole crazy au pair community and it was like it was pretty raucous and you know at Columbia I joined a fraternity 
which was hardly qualified as a fraternity since it was co-ed mostly women. But we had a house. It was Delta Phi. And Skylar joined and two. And there was a ritual around joining that was absolutely insane. It's called the Odyssey, but it's a whole other podcast probably. <laughs> and um, it became a music frat. And the president of the frat was this guy named Dave Graham, who was Bill Graham's son. So Bill mm-hmm. Graham was a legendary promoter in the Bay Area, promoted Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and tons of other stuff. Not to be and, confused with Billy, Billy Graham, but go ahead. <laughs> that's true. Very different guys. <laughs> and Dave started basically the East Coast version of Bill Graham's, Bill Graham Presents in okay. our frat house. And it was called Music Unlimited. And we turned the basement into a kind of rehearsal recording studio and started signing bands. And uh, a lot of New York local bands, Some this one called Dreamspeak, one called Willard Moan, one called Blues Traveler, which you probably heard of, one called The Spin mm-hmm. Doctors, which you probably heard of too. My band, and we took over this little club called the 712 Club up on 125th Street. And we were booking that. And then in the summers, Dave and all the frat guys would work for the dead. So work in parking lot, security, you know. So for me, (laughs) it was pretty unbelievable opportunity to dive headfirst into, you know, my passion that was music but also, you know, be driving a golf cart around the dead parking lot. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. pretty cool. And then Bill died in the helicopter crash. He and his girlfriend at the time, which was my drummer's mother. And that kind of just sent everything upside down and everything kind of collapsed. But, you know, that music, you know, all those guys, Dave Melody, Adam Schneider, all these guys that were kind of older that were kind of the senior guys in Delta Phi, they became kind of like my music business. I don't know. I wouldn't call it mentors, but they're, you know, we were making shit happen basically, mm. you know, at a pretty young age. And from the academic perspective, Columbia was, you know, I mean, yeah, it's an Ivy league school, but it has a very particular curriculum called the core curriculum. that's very, very humanities based and to be honest, I had learned all that stuff already in, in high school. Um, and, I, you know, my high school experience from an academic perspective was thorough and intense. I mean, I was at boarding school wearing a coat and tie, going to chapel, going to class on Saturdays. You know, it was intense. And it basically carried me till today. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I wasn't top of my class or anything like that, but I was doing fine, kind of phoning it in. But my passion and my interest was elsewhere. So when you were going on the Bluegrass Bluegrass tour with Skylar, that was your first time really practicing being a manager because I'm assuming you were making all the the bookings for your band? Yeah, I was making the bookings, you know, writing a lot of the tunes, organizing the recordings, 
You You're know? doing everything. You were yeah, like, dude, yeah, I did the freaking cover art. You know, it was like, <laughs> what uh, program did you use to do the cover art? Harvard oh graphics. My, to be honest, back then, I think I hand drew it. Yeah, and I, this might even be pre Kinkos, but then like <laughs> printed it out. You know, in a in a copy shop and cut it out. I mean, you know, it was old school. You know, and it was cassettes. You know, this right? Was, uh, this was the deal. I was always like that. Skylar and I started a guacamole business briefly, where we did a <laughs> a bulk deal with Fairway, which was a you know market on the Upper West Side to get avocados in bulk. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, I loved making guacamole. That was my big thing, you know, kind of through in high school through college was guacamole. And so, yeah, we would make guacamole, package it up, and, you know, we'd bring it to the festivals. And, you know, we were selling other things, too. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, guacamole front. It was right out of teaching Chong. I mean, it was like, right, like guacamole front. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you, you, know, you, your, you pull up the secret compartment in the cooler, and underneath, yeah. you know, you had your, your quarter ounces and your eighth ounces and things <laughs> like that. So, you know, that was it. It's just hustling. And then... My band kind of got a little bit of traction and, you know, I was the dude like one o'clock, you know, at the wetlands, people filing out, I would be the dude with the flyers. Like, mm -hmm. here you go. Come see my band. Come see my show. Here you go. Flyers. And yeah, I was always hustling like that. I was never really asked for a lot of help. I was like, okay, I got to make a flyer. I'll make a flyer. Oh, I got to get them distributed. Oh, I'll just distribute them. Oh, I got to get a gig. I'll just book the gig. You know, mm -hmm. oh, I got to make the record. Oh, fuck it. I'll just buy the gear on eBay. That was it. Like I, I started a recording studio right when eBay first launched. I bought mm -hmm. all the gear, ADATs, and I started a recording, recording studio in 1995, something like that. In Down your apartment in New York? No, I got a little... Like I found a, a proper recording studio right by the World Trade Center, two mm -hmm. blocks north. There was this kooky business. Uh, so, you know, I graduated from college. I went to go work for RCA Records for a little while. That's kind of when you could actually make a lot of money in the music industry. And like I had a, a real job and I saved some money. It was cool. But, you know, I never really wanted to work for the man, if you will. So I rented this little spot that was associated with this business called the Off Wall Street Jam, mm -hmm. which was basically a live studio where guys that worked on Wall Street would come in with like a giant Fosters or two at like five o'clock and they'd play rock and roll covers, lay down Sally all night. You know, just business dudes getting their rocks off and getting hammered. But mm -hmm. between... But that was like five to eight, five to nine. So otherwise, the studio was not being used. So I did a deal with a guy, Bill, crazy motherfucker. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and to rent the use of the studio at the all the other hours of the day. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, you know, we did that. And uh, I built with Sean, <laughs> who, who's my best friend, who also went to Columbia, who eventually started Wanderlust with, et cetera. You know, I built a recording studio there, you know, kind of patched together a bunch of gear off eBay 
and I put an ad. I was a one-man show at that point. Sean was a lawyer. He didn't leave the business, his law firm until later. But mm-hmm. I uh, just took out ads in the Village Voice, and I was answering the phone, and I was the engineer, and there would be just people coming off the street. I produced probably 100 hip-hop demos. I got – I had to learn everything. <laughs> I had to make – You were beat. a hip-hop producer? I Well, I mean, I wouldn't – you know – I mean, I'm not like, I'm not Timba, but yeah, I mean, I was in Cause there. that was back in the day. That was during the Puff Daddy era back in the mid nineties. Yeah. In, this was uh, like New York this, city. Yeah. This was like mid late nineties. Yeah. And like I had my MPC 2000 and that mm-hmm. was it. Like, you know, that's where all the beats were made on that. And, but I also could play instruments so I could sample. I had my ASR. So yeah, I was sampling all myself and then, and then I built this huge library of samples and beats and then cats would come in and all they'd have were like, you know, rhymes written down in notebooks. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have, they didn't have the, they, most of the time they didn't even have the beats. Mm-hmm. So I was just throwing together beats and, you know, engineering, producing, da da da, and then burning a deep, burning a CD and, they'd walk out with that. And most of those sessions, you know, how that rolled, that it was like, we'd roll out of there five, six in the morning, like every night. And that was some crazy hustle for a bunch of those years. Did any of those songs blow up? No. <laughs> I mean, not that I know of, but what happened was during that time, my brother, he was crashing at my place a lot. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go see these cats. They're like, uh, these two other brothers, they're living up in Woodstock and I need a place to crash. And in, anyways, for a couple of days before I go to Boston, and I'm like, all right, well, cool. Let me know how it goes. And then he called me, he went to Woodstock and played a couple, like wrote some tunes with these guys and called me. It was like, this band is crazy. It's going to be incredible. And I was like, all right. And so I man, I decided I was going to manage them and sign them to what? I don't know at that point. I didn't have anything. <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to sign you guys. And they came down and we recorded an album in this studio um, that I had that at that point was called Full Tilt Studios. And that band was so live. And we ended up around the world selling about 250,000 records, which was it's not a Taylor Swift, but for me, <laughs> it was, that was a significant deal over time. And that kind of just broke me into, it actually made me decide of whether I was going to be a musician or whether I was going to be in the music business. And mm-hmm. at that juncture, I said, okay, I'm just going to, I can't be kind of mediocre at both. So I'm going to go into the music business. And then I ended up starting to do distribution deals around the world and signing more artists and building like a cool little indie management company and record label and, you know, was managing all sorts of different acts and had all of our bands all over festivals and putting tours together and making records. And I did a big deal with Starbucks, which kind of was in and of its time, like a big deal for us. And yeah, you know, really, you know, I managed Michelle. Was that the one where you, you, where Starbucks was selling music for the first time and doing like compilations and stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. This was, they, they early, um, like the record business 
you know, as digital became more prevalent, you know, started to get shaky. And Starbucks kind of emerged as a very prominent and influential player for retailing CDs. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Tower Records started closing, Virgin Megastore started closing, CD sales were all down. And, you know, Starbucks did two records. They did Nora Jones, the first Nora Jones record, and then the Ray Charles record with Concord. Mm-hmm. And they would put them there right by the register, like right mm-hmm. where you checked out. And mm-hmm. they would play the music in the overhead speakers. Mm-hmm. And it was just impulse buys. And they were just cranking records. I mean, they were selling huge amounts of those records. But but it was, you know, a particular vein. You know, it was for that. It was coffee shop music. Yeah, Yeah. coffee shop music. They basically kind of invented the genre of coffee shop music. But, you know, it was kind of bougie. It wasn't too loud and intense or anything like that. And I was in there and I was um, was like, wow, you know, this could be really a saving grace for – selling records and I had gotten a demo sent to me by a 13 year old girl. And we, you know, we would get demos in all the time on cassettes, you know, mm-hmm. and I got a demo from this 13 year old girl. And most of the time you wouldn't even listen to them. But for some reason I popped it in and I was like, Oh my God, this girl, not even a woman this girl had this voice of an angel and she was writing songs at 13. So I went up to see her. She was from Western Mass and she was playing gigs at this little place called Club Helsinki, which at that point was in Great Barrington. It moved to Hudson, but it was a very reputable club, small, but they always had cool, really high quality artists playing Mm -hmm. there. I went to go see her show and she had a band and she, you know, was 13. She was giggly and kind of goofy, but but once she played and started singing, it was remarkable. And so I, I hung out after with her and her mom. And I said, hey, you know, have you, you know, I know you write some songs. What's up? And she took out like three or four notebooks just full of songs. And I was like, oh, my God. And in the very first time I met her in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, my God, this, this should be in Starbucks, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But, of course, there was thousands of people in the music industry saying that in the back of their minds. But I, I did. I signed that girl. Her name was Sonia Kitchell, and she became a very, very, very good friend. And I produced this record of hers. I wrote a lot of the string parts, and I was so involved in it, and produced really just a beautiful record. And I give her all the credit. They were all her songs. Right. And I knew one person at Starbucks. Not even in the music department, but I weaved my way slowly through the labyrinth of a very big company till I finally found this one guy, Bill Corey, who then introduced me to this other woman named Brenda Walker, and who was coming to New York. And I met her at the W Hotel, and I was like, you just got to listen to this. I know that this is just perfect for Starbucks. And we did, the, we did it. We did the biggest independent deal that had ever been done with Starbucks up to that time around uh, kind of this kind of discovery artist. And yeah, they stocked hundreds of thousands of those records for us. And that was, yeah, it was a, it's a beautiful, that was bigger. That was bigger than soul live was then for you. Yeah. It was kind of the next building block. Yeah. It was significant. 
and really like solidified the company's well-being for a while because it was dodgy. Mm. I think it was, you know, more than anything, it was almost like an acknowledgement. It was sort of like a recognition of like, mm. yeah, you know, you guys are doing good work and the world <laughs> deserves to hear it. Talk about 9-11, and, and you said you were two blocks north yeah. of the uh, tower. So what was that experience like for you? It was intense. I mean, we would go up on the roof because our studio was on the top floor. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't a very tall building, four, maybe four, four or five stories. But we could go on the roof and do what musicians do on roofs, which is not read Rousseau. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, well, that's what I'm doing now. And we would look at the World Trade Center. We would look at the Twin Towers. And in order to look at them, we would literally have to crane our necks all the way back and look straight up. Mm -hmm. And we would often wonder, we'd be like, God, man, if those things ever fell over, you know, whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, we were real close. And, yeah, all that stuff happened. We actually ended up moving a block away when before 9-11 but mm -hmm. we were still right there but we needed some more office space and then you know 9-11 happened and we were in such the tight radius that we were not able to access our office for a number of months i think maybe two or three weeks out they you know gave us a little window to go in and, and collect some affairs and we got in the office and it like debris and dust had just been blown through the entire office space. So, you know, it was like super intense time, you know, to live in, in New York during that time. I mean, it was in some ways an incredibly beautiful time because there was this incredible sense of connection that emerged out of the collective grief that people mm. were feeling. Not completely unlike now, but also very different because you know, you could be social with people. And, right. you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, people sort of random acts of kindness and people high-fiving and hugging in the subways and on the sidewalks and stuff that, like, cut through kind of the normal distinctions that people make around race and religion and culture and ethnicity. And, like, it was really kind of brought people together in, in a beautiful way mm -hmm. uh, for a while. And, you know, like these huge kind of traumatic, um, oftentimes in these kind of times of crisis and trauma, it inspires people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. So kind of in the aftermath of that, my wife decided, Skylar decided to open a yoga studio right above me in the same building because most of the people had vacated our building at that juncture. Um, just because it was too intense. So, yeah, so she opened Kula Yoga Project and opened the doors in early 2002, just right there out of the ashes of 9-11, right at ground zero. Was she still selling guacamole up until that point, or what was her, <laughs> what no. was her deal? No, we, we had graduated a little bit from some of the um, shenanigans. Way, so, yeah, wayward, madcap shenanigans <laughs> of our youth. She became a video editor for a little while, and then you know she comes from a 
relatively prolific acting family. So she had been doing theater all of her life. And just prior to that, she had an agent and she got booked, not Young and the Restless, what's the other one? The famous one with the Erica uh, soap as opera. As the world turns. Uh, give me one more. It's the other like really big one. I can't believe I can't Days remember. of Our Lives. Oh, yeah, anyways. But I'll remember it in a moment. It was in, I was on ABC. So she was on soap opera for a year and a half or something like that. And she at first was like, I'm never want to do this. I'm never going to do this. And she's like, you're going to pay me what? <laughs> uh, all my children. All, my, all children. my children. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, you know, they gave her her own like little mini apartment in that ABC building on the Upper West Side. And she was like, oh, this is pretty, pretty good. And so she had a little run on all my children. And then one day was reading her sides and discovered through reading her sides that she was going to be blown up in a boiler room accident on the show. And, mm -hmm. and that was it. You know, her character was written out. Daisy, who was a very popular character, had settled her contract dispute and was coming back on the show to be the main love interest. So Skylar was no longer needed. And at that juncture, she decided, like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm not going to be at the whim of, you know, a casting agent or a writer or a contract. I, I just need to take control of my own life. And she, you know, had been um, an avid yoga student and then had done a yoga teacher training and that had stemmed from way back when she was she had been run over by a wayward hippie driving a vw bus so i was I, you know always had back problems and had you know, cured those largely with yoga and so yeah right after 9 11 she she opened kula which in sanskrit means intentional community and you know i had a front row seat to the power of that little humble funky yoga studio to, you know, really heal and transform people in a very kind of hyperbolized situation. And, you know, a lot of people think of the financial district as, as largely just a business district, but mm -hmm. it's actually quite significant residential district. And yeah, you know, I just got to see firsthand kind of mostly women, you know, who had, were going through a tremendous amount of shock and trauma and grief come into that little studio and sweat it out on the mat and then go into this tiny little lobby vestibule with like a futon couch and just share and open up their hearts and be vulnerable and hug it out and cry it out and heal and eventually rediscover their spark and their creativity. So, you know, I saw just that transformative power of, yoga but also community and that really bent the arc of my kind of professional life going forward so you how what was the extent of your yoga experience before she opened up her uh, studio very limited that was not part of my experience growing up at all my yoga experience was just through her and I was not a practitioner, but I've, I highly associated with the values of yoga, um, right. which at that juncture, I wasn't exactly clear what those were. But for me, there seemed to be a component of progressiveness, 
of course, like nonviolence and ahimsa, but I wasn't really hip to exactly what that all was or the tradition of that. But I, I resonated with this notion of like, okay, are these the people that practice yoga tend to be progressive. They tend to value sustainability. They tend to value community. They tend to be, you know, non-discriminatory, like essentially all the things that I, all my socio-political beliefs seem to lay very squarely on top of that yoga community. So I was like, okay, yeah, you know, this is cool. I like this scene. Um, and what, what was your satisfaction level with, with the music industry at that point? It was still, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of this kind of overlapped, you know, the timelines really do overlap. And, you know, a, as it got to be kind of later in the 2000s, in the first decade of the 2000s, the music business was so tricky. But I also started to feel a pull towards making a bigger impact with my life you know, devoting my energy and my time to what I would call now right work and action. But I suppose at that, at that point, just having a greater sense of meaning to my work. And it took me a long time to figure out how to manifest that, to be honest, because, you know, Skylar had, has, you know, that studio instantiated in 2002, you know, early 2002, and, you know, I didn't start Wanderlust till 2008, 2009. So it was a long gestation period of kind of really understanding what I wanted to do. You know, I wasn't in, until, it wasn't until my late 30s that I somehow figured out how to kind of align my passion with what I do every single day, day in and day out. Now, I don't want to say that, like, I didn't, I wasn't passionate about music because I obviously was, but I was very, you know, I became so business focused and, and I wasn't, and, and, and I don't mean to undermine music's ability to create a lot of joy and help people, but I just found a more direct line later. What was your mental state like at the time? Feeling pretty balanced? Overall. Yeah. You know, overall, Yes. I always worked out a lot, so that really helped. I played mm -hmm. a ton of basketball, like a ridiculous, almost to the point of absurd amount of basketball. <laughs> and that kept me fit and focused and present. I love basketball. And uh, I had sort of a very unfortunate and sad ending with it. <laughs> but, I was going to um, say, every guy I know who plays that much basketball in his 30s ends up pulling something or tearing something at some point. Yeah, yeah. I hung up my high tops once and for all. I won. It was very one very specific incident that was enough because it was really, unfortunately, it was disrupting my life in a way that was not acceptable <laughs> from a from a physical capacity. But that really helped me during that time. Um, but I will say, like, I was a bit of a zombie. I was just kind of like going through life's to-do lists. You know, <laughs> I'd wake up, I was busy. I always filled my days with a tremendous amount of busyness. 
I was always at the bottom of my own priority list from like a self-care perspective. You know, basketball was, was great, but it wasn't like exactly self-care per se. So, you know, I, I was good, but, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really focused on kind of bettering myself. I don't think I read a book for 15 years, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got into that mode, like I'm working all day and drinking coffee in the morning and drinking beers or wine at night and just grinding and working all day. And, and that's kind of it. I mean, you know, I don't, again, mean to like really demean it because I got, I traveled all over the place. We were going to Asia, we we're going to Japan all the time. You know, I went to every festival in the United States, got, you know, to meet every musician. I mean, it was great on some level. But it wasn't enlightened. It was not an enlightened existence. And when did you realize that it was time to shift? What was that moment like? You know, Skylar started leading retreats and mostly in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. And so I, I became kind of hip to her yoga community, the Kula scene, because they were upstairs. And so then, you know, I would start to tag along on some of these retreats. And, you know, we'd fly into San Jose and then drive to some other random airport and take a puddle jumper to Puerto Jimenez and then get in the back of a truck and, like, you know, bounce out on this road, you know, for an hour. And and then there we'd be, you know, there we were, like 30 people, mostly women in their late 20s, early 30s, like waking up with the sun, meditating, surfing, doing yoga, you know, making food, local food, <laughs> like wasn't really local food, it was just the food that was growing there. And mm-hmm. then, you know, at night, like telling stories and playing music and having a glass of wine, like basically living the most inspired, connected life that you could lead. And so like, I was like, man, this is it. You know, this is people really being in community you know, really caring for each other, having real conversations, being healthy. This is what life should be all about. But it's also like in this far-flung rainforest on the Osa Peninsula, just completely divorced from what is reality for most people. And, you know, it's also there was an economic component to it. It's like that was interesting, but also exclusive, you know, mm-hmm. which was like, okay, it's not like these women that were on these retreats were well, were wealthy per se, but they were willing to essentially spend all their disposable income on this, on this experience and on this mm-hmm. lifestyle. But not everybody can do that. And so I started, you know, really thinking about like how, how, how I could alloy kind of the experience I had from the music business, which was like a lot of nuts and bolts of like production and bringing product to market and look and feel and design and website functionality and ticketing and with the values and the practices of yoga and the associated modalities um, that I wasn't totally aware of at that juncture, but, but now I am. And really, you know, the inspiration for kind of the shift in my own personal life, but then also what became, you know, Wanderlust, 
you know, happened there and in the, in the bowels of the rainforest with kind of the idea of like, well, geez, if I could put this experience closer to a major metropolitan center, but still somewhere beautiful Mm -hmm. and bring together a lot of incredible teachers. Could I basic, I mean, it was pretty simple. It was like, could I make the world's biggest yoga retreat? Could I do 3000 people instead of 30? Like, cause, and, and I wasn't afraid to build the stages on top of the mountains and put, you know, with sound and lights and all of that, because that was my reality. <laughs> you know, I knew that. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's where that idea had its seed. And then, you know, there was a whole, you know, process of realizing and manifesting the seed of that idea. Had you saved up money and you were going to invest your own money or do you look up, look for sponsors or what was the next step for funding this? Dream? We needed investors and dude, I was so naive. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not an MBA obviously. And at that juncture, I literally followed instinct and heart. That's it. You know, I could barely function in Excel, let alone, you know, build a five-year pro forma or a business plan or any financial plan. So, you know, I put together what I thought was the best little deck I could in PowerPoint and started like going around and trying, you know, to raise some money. Mm -hmm. And this was the fall of 2008. So it's not the greatest time (laughs) in the world to raise money. And so I think we raised the money three different times. Um, and each time, uh, when <laughs> we got, that, got swept up from underneath you every time, every time. Yeah. Uh, even to the point where we were done, we were done. And my community of people that I knew was in the music business. So that's where I went. So we had universal, they were done. They were in, we were good to go. We had had a million conference calls, a million meetings. It was sort of a strange partner for the idea, but, and, and then we had had a couple other folks, but we did uh, eventually get investment in, in a strange, rickety joint venture. With Dave Matthews' uh, manager or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. With Corin Capshaw, who had, you know, funded Bonnaroo and Outside Lance and part owner in South by Southwest and South by Southwest. And uh, anyways, and, and then the C3 guys that, Austin City Limits and Lollapalooza. So we were well covered from a festival perspective. And, you know, those guys became our partners. But, you know, it was quickly clear, like, what we did was so different on some level culturally from, from you know, big stages with 60,000 people that largely based on Budweiser sales, you know. But it was great to have those partners. And, you know, it, it got us off the ground. And, Man, it was a long, strange trip from there, you know, from launching one festival in Squaw Valley in Lake Tahoe, California, to 68 in 20 countries 10 years later. Um, so w- when you first came to Sean with the idea after Costa Rica, was he on board right away? Or did you have to kind of convince him and sell him a little bit on the idea? Yeah, there was some convincing for sure. But he, you know, he had been... he. He might, he was my partner in the music business. So we were right. already had been partners for a long time. 
and he had come down to Costa Rica. So he, he understood, he got it, but it was a little bit of convincing to completely pivot the business. Um, right. And the idea was not to completely pivot the business. We had every intention of continuing to run the record label and the management company and then just do Wanderlust on the side. And that's how, <laughs> and you know, pretty quickly it became more than a side project. And then, you know, C3 ended up buying the management company. So we got out, you know, in a, in a way that was, made it worthwhile and allowed us to focus all of our energy and efforts on, um, on building Wanderlust for, mm-hmm. for better or worse. So what was the first experience in Squaw, in Squaw Valley like in, in terms of your expectations <laughs> and what was going on behind the scenes versus, you know, what everyone saw on, on, on the stage? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, for me, yoga, meditation, music, nature, sustainability, organics, biodynamic wine, like that was all made a lot of sense to me because that was essentially (laughs) like how I was living my life. That was just kind of like Skyler and my, our lifestyle. But, and I, and this is often the case with me is that I just assume that my lifestyle is pretty much everybody else's. And so I just, took for granted the notion that all those things go together, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But when we went to market, it was like fucking crickets, man. We used to call that in the music business, the whale watch. (laughs) (laughs) The whale watch. I mean, I've got so many stories about launching it, but basically I was at Bonnaroo, which was in June. It's like June 10th or something around there. And our first festival in 2009 at Squaw Valley was end of July. And I, we'd probably sold maybe a hundred tickets tops. <laughs> so I'm backstage with a bunch of my music industry guys and this guy named Matt Hickey. He was like, so what's up? Are you selling any tickets? I'm like, no man, whale watch. And he's like, this is what you got to do. You got to drive back to Nashville. You're going to fly back to New York. You're going to pack up your family and you're going to move to Lake Tahoe and you're going to get yourself a truck or a whatever, a station wagon, and you're going to fill it with free tickets and you're going to fill it with posters and you're going to fill it with flyers and you're going to buy yourself a staple gun and you're going to get some rolls of tape and you are going to get a big map and you're going to put it on your wall and you're going to circle every town, every bar, every event every farmer's market, every beach, and every day you're going to go out and you're going to explain what the fuck this thing is and you're going to hand people tickets for free. Anyone that makes any sense, radio station, DJs, bar managers, hotel managers, just give it away. And that's exactly what I did. Went back to New York, packed up my family, got a Volvo station wagon and filled it up. And my daughter, Phoebe, was super young at that point. And she went out with, with me a lot. And every day I just was, I was the most grassroots thing you could possibly imagine. I was there at the freaking 7-Eleven putting up posters. They'd get ripped down, go back the next day, put them up. I was on the radio station every morning at 8 a.m. I mean, this is KTKE, which is like it, where the radio station was in the back of like a barbecue joint. And <laughs> and and I was there trying to explain, yeah, yoga, music, nature. 
I got it at least that simple. Yoga, music, nature. You get that? People are like, huh? What? Yoga and music and the nature? I don't get it. But I did that, you know, for 50, 50 days or something. And then the night, Michael Franti, who was our headliner, and the night before his headlining show, first year festival, burst his appendix. So I had to deal with that and somehow pulled Common out of my ass and Common flew out from Philly with his band and filled in. How are you paying these guys if you only sold 150 tickets? Well, I mean, you know, we were lucky to have investors that would essentially stand behind the risk. Mm -hmm. They absorbed some serious red in that first year, but they knew that game. They had launched plenty of festivals and festivals in their first year often lose money. Uh, we mm -hmm. lost an impressive amount for the scale of the event. But I had given away probably 2,500 tickets. Mm -hmm. So it didn't feel bad. It felt pretty good. Like there was a critical mass of people there. And in year one, it was not the iteration. It, it, there was, it was an iterative development for Wanderlust. In year one, we basically ran a music festival with a yoga component. It was right. like some considerable music names. And, you know, as I was ex assessing that experience in that first year, I was like, okay, we got hosed financially. And there was a lot of things to be concerned about, but there was something interesting happening. There was a glimmer of something of magic dust of fairy dust and that was like this mashup of the djs with shiva ray on a big stage with a sound system and lights and like people doing yoga and getting up and dancing and being in community together and being at one with the nature and then going off and doing hikes i mean there was something new and fresh and interesting because at that juncture the only kind of yoga gatherings that had existed were in these were yoga journal conferences, which were like, you know, in, in, you know, fluorescent carpeted Hyatts. Mm -hmm. And so that first year was very easy to recognize that like, okay, we need to focus the whole experience on this, on this yoga experience, this yoga lifestyle, all of the kind of the diaspora of, of what that was and what that meant. And then, yeah, and then we kind of, from there, really honed it in and focused it in. And those first few years were so exciting. You know, that's always kind of the most exciting part when you're kind of building something from scratch and, you know, you see that there's some enthusiasm and energy around it and, you know, you feel like you're innovating. And, and so those first few years were, were really, really special. And we, uh, you know, I think we were a big part of establishing a, a you know, a, a part of the culture. And, and also really, by the time we were done, cementing that lifestyle of all of those things actually going together. You know, that, that all these things that seemed disparate, like green juice and yoga and nature and sustainability and all those things that I had mentioned before, that now those things are seen as part of an overall 
kind of set of active choices that you can make as a bigger part of like how you want to live your life. And I think we played some part in helping to establish that. We could obviously do a whole podcast just on your various wanderlust stories and experiences, but I'm sure a lot of those stories are already out there yeah. in podcast land. Tell me a little bit about, because you, you're in an interesting position now, you've actually transitioned away from the day-to-day operations of wanderlust. The event has scaled down a bit in the recent couple of years. Looking back now at the body of work that is wanderlust, what is the takeaway for you as now 50 year old Jeff with all the life experiences from Babito on the yeah. playground <laughs> through, throughout the music industry and, and sort of finding your own true North in, in this festival experience and, and into commune, which is what you're up to now. What is the takeaway from the wanderlust sort of body of work? Well, I will say that I had, a bit of a spiritual awakening, I suppose, kind of towards the end of my operational role at Wanderlust, which has given me what I would say some good perspective on it. I think it's really important now more than ever to build things at human scale. And I think for many, many years at Wanderlust, I was so intoxicated by the potential growth, that, you know, we were going to be part of leading this kind of global cultural revolution around well-being. And, and you know, there, there was no limit to the amount of events that we would do. And over that time, you know, all of a sudden, it was like, you know, 100 plus employees, plus, you know, all of these partners all around the world, like many of whom I didn't even know their names. And, when I look at like what it became, yes, it certainly became like a much, much more commercial experience. And I take full responsibility for that because I led that part of the business. I'm the one that did all of the deals with Jody, you know, with Toyota and Ford and Google and Adidas and all that kind of stuff. And in retrospect, you know, I look at what made Wanderlust kind of successful from a financial perspective. And it was really those deals. And as I think about it, why were those people so attracted to what we were doing? Yeah, certainly like, yeah, we represented, like we were sort of gatekeepers to a certain demographic that certain brands wanted access to. And, you know, we were creating these sticky, memorable experiences that they could connect to. But really, it was more the language that we were using around growth and Mm. globalism and all of these kind of notions of being big and bigger was better. And, you know, how many more events are we going to add this year? And then the pressure that then that would put on staffing and sponsorship and grow and grow and grow and grow. And because we were coming from that mentality and often using that language and spending most of my time thinking about that or flying to corporate headquarters around the world in order to generate enough money to be able to execute this and that and stuff like that, 
that is what you become. <laughs> and in a way, it's like the systems and structures that govern our lives, if they are devoid of the heart of, I would call, spiritual principles, then how are they supposed to serve spiritual beings? And, you know, I think that that was my big learning is that, mm -hmm. is that scale and growth does not even remotely equate to success. Mm. And that building systems and structures that are aligned with your highest principles is the best and most righteous work that you can do. Building systems and structures at human scale to serve humans by humans, that is the most righteous work that you can do. You know, Wayne Dyer, man, one piece of advice that I got from him was, you know, and, and I didn't even realize what I was getting, stay close to the work. And of course, what he was talking was about was spiritual work. You know, he traveled the world and did a ton of events, but he was never at like the big dinners or the social events. He was back in the hotel doing the work. And, you know, that's what I, I think, you know, in my sort of wide eyed quest to grow, which to take it full circle was not completely disconnected from my obsession of the with the approval of others with Bobito and the other kids on that schoolyard you know that i in many ways needed to feel a sense of ease and self-love i needed to be recognized for doing something big by other people and in a way you know I don't think that that was in the best interest of the company or any company, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So that's, you know, where I, you know, sit today, you know, with a, with some degree of removal and just, you know, a larger toolkit is stay close to the work, stay close to the heart build at human scale. And then, you know, that's, I think, you know, in COVID-19, <laughs> you know, it's, there's no better time to address, you know, corporate globalisms, you know, systems and structures that have essentially turned human beings into transactional units that, you know, consistently define people by who they are and what they do and their resume and what they have constantly make people feel like they're not enough. And then, you know, market goods and services to them to assuage that perceived efficiencies. You know, we have this opportunity now to like take stock of our lives and reprioritize and reconnect with the things that made life worthwhile and precious and sacred. There's a fantastic book that Charles Eisenstein wrote called Sacred Economics, and he writes about sacred. What is the meaning of sacred? And sacred are things that are unique. 
that they are not standardized or commodified in the name of operational efficiency that, you know, your grandmother made that dress or mm. like, and in retrospect, I think about that with Wanderlust, like the creativity and that we were able to connect around when we had two festivals that were, by the way, extremely profitable and transformational for people. When we had two, boy, could we make them unique? Could we make them special? Could we make them sacred? And I just think like we need that across everything that we do, like whether it's a festival or a loaf of bread. <laughs> offer a reflection here, just hearing how you kind of summarized your the body of work that is wonderless. And I still want to mention commune and what that's about for you right now, but it kind of reminds me the eternal struggle of Batman. You're <laughs> <laughs> gonna tie that back. I love it. <laughs> Batman being being this, you know, and one of the things that I think makes him unique in the scheme of all the other superheroes is he was a regular guy. He didn't really have any superpowers. You know, yeah. he wasn't born with any superpowers. He he kind of made a decision that I'm going to move in this direction and I'm going to help people who are helpless, who can't help themselves. And from what, what I'm hearing from you is your sort of purpose that you fell into is one of helping people find themselves instead of some big villain, the, the obstacle that I think most people have, myself included, is buying into the social conditioning that more is better, bigger is better, and success is equated with how much you have in the bank and how many connections and how much resources you have. And, and, and I think the ethos of Wanderlust, which is bringing people back to themselves, is so important right now with everything that's happening with the pandemic because it's almost like we're being forced into that and forced to sit with ourselves and it's interesting that you kind of, through that experience, you went through the entire trajectory and that internal struggle between what is too much and what is not enough. And that's kind of, you know, I'm not a huge comic book fan, but I've seen all the Batman movies and that's kind of his struggle that he goes through. And I'm not sure how mm. conscious you yeah. were of that back when you were, you know, seven or eight years old, but it's just interesting to see how I've done a lot of these interviews and I always start with childhood and your favorite activity. And it's just interesting to see how those kinds of things, and maybe I'm stretching a little bit, I don't know, but it's interesting to see how they, they can line up. If you, when we look at them from the sort of broader lens of uh, maturity and, and, and the wisdom that we get from our life experience, does that resonate with you at all? Or, or is that, it, it, yeah. it does. I mean, A, I love the metaphor and I love the way that you've brought it back around in an interesting and coherent way. And certainly, yeah, I think that there, there is something around, I like the, the idea of, yes, the average guy that can somehow put on a, a mask and a cape to make himself exceptional. You know, what I think often is I try to weave a thread through my entire life, what I often come back to, it's the notion of, of community and how 
desperately I sought it out when I was a kid and then how I subconsciously manifested that through my whole life of like essentially putting people together in clubs and theaters and festivals to wanderlust to commune. And that has been the thread if I can identify anything. And, and, you know, there is this idea that I've thought about is like, you can have a band on a stage at soundcheck and they might be playing the most brilliant music, but if there's no one there, it doesn't really resonate or mean anything. And, you know, four hours later, you pack that place full of a thousand people and that are experiencing something. And that feeling when there is a musical crescendo and you look around the theater or the club and everyone has that same rapt expression on their face and they're all feeling the same. It's, it, it's as if they're not even themselves, that they have transcended, they've become the music, they've transcended what generally defines our human reality, space, time, location, and form, and they've become one another. They've transcended self. And of course, that's at the, you know, the core of every spiritual, you know, teaching. And, you know, that, that has become kind of what I have started to understand spirituality as being. It's recognizing kind of this interconnectivity. The power, I, I suppose it's like recognizing that we're all connected by a power that's greater than us. Uh, mm. And what better pursuit for your life than fostering that. Mm -hmm. And talk, talk a little bit about um, commune and how that experience with Wanderlust is dovetailing into that. And what are you doing differently? Well, certainly, you know, the relationships that I was incredibly fortunate that Wanderlust basically facilitated for me in every way over the course of, you know, a long time have been, I mean, that's been the, the holy grail for me, you know, is basic is being able to build friendships and relationships with people that have altered the course of my life that have impacted me and others, people that I respect. So being able to build kind of this broad, I guess, portfolio of relationships with mostly with teachers, and then find a way kind of with a human scale infrastructure to create a lot of impact with that. And that's really, you know, exciting. And at the core, what we do is, you know, create online education featuring kind of top respected teachers, you know, across spiritual and personal development, yoga and meditation, functional medicine, social impact. But, you know, th this business, I suppose it can create a lot of impact, but with a very human way. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. I get to, um, I mean, like you, you know, I'm hosting a podcast and uh, mm -hmm. that has been a fantastic experience for me because it keeps me learning because you know, every week for 94 weeks in a row, I'm interviewing someone 
who is not only smarter than me, but also has a particular expertise. So by extension, just out of fear of embarrassment, <laughs> if nothing else, <laughs> I have to, you know, push myself and challenge myself and read a tremendous amount and listen. And, and that has been a fantastic growth opportunity for me personally. Mm. I love it. Well, I, I definitely going to include all of the uh, commune information in the show notes to the podcast. I like to end the, the interview by asking the question if someone were to come to you and 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 say that they wanted to you know, start a movement in the way that you've started your movement. If you didn't have a whole lot of time to, to kind of get into the details, what advice would you give to them? I mean, I suppose you have to move yourself before you move anyone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been doing a lot of writing recently and if I'm not moved, if my heart doesn't leap while I'm writing, then that particular piece is bound for the dustbin. So I would just always underscore the importance of really moving yourself before you try to move anyone else. And I think that goes back to that notion of really staying close and honoring the work. And, you know, from a business perspective, I think, you know, that also speaks to aligning your core mission with the profitability or sustainability of your company. So just making sure that those things are completely overlapped. Like a commune, it's like we wrote on the wall, we want to bring well-being to a billion people. And guess what? If we do that, I bet the company's bottom line is going to look pretty damn good, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I always kind of uh, question when I see like, oh, yeah, ExxonMobil has a sustainability mission. You know, that anachronism doesn't work, you know? Right. Like Martin Luther King, you know, is not going to live, lead a civil rights movement while also running like a used car, you know, facility <laughs> or whatever, you know, it's just like, you know, this, this is what the authentic life has become to mean for me. The life with integrity is aligning mm-hmm. your works and actions with your highest principles, irrespective of external conditions. Mm. Just stick with that, you know, and be ready. Just do the work and be ready. And uh, I love that. Yeah. Well, I want to acknowledge you, man, for your commitment to your mission and uh, your generosity to the yoga community and the meditation and mindfulness community for sharing your your experience and 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 you know you've you've made the world a better place there are people out there right now who have including myself i've been to several wanderlust festivals as you know and i've got fond memories from those experiences and you know there are people i'm sure who were at some amazing concerts yeah. <laughs> years and years ago and they have fond memories there's some guy down in florida who remembers getting this amazing guacamole one time at this bluegrass <laughs> festival <laughs> you know years and years yeah. ago i'll give you the first and, two the last one i'm not sure but <laughs> <laughs> um, if you don't mind no, i want to say one last thing which is actually it's been so gratifying is this over the, the last month uh and i mentioned this to you i think in a voice note 
but I've been doing quite a bit of writing and, you know, fortunately we've built a very large database. So I get to circulate that out once a week on a Sunday. And in the postscript of that, that goes out to, I think, about 850,000 people now, I offer frontline workers and anyone that has lost their employment due to COVID-19 free access to your meditation course. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. And I get probably three or 400 emails that go into a particular email box every week. And I answer every single one of them personally. Wow. And that's, I guess I would call my dharma or my commitment during this time of what I can do. And, you know, some people just email me and say, you know, I lost my job. Can I have the meditation course? <laughs> and I say, sure, I'll set you up and this is how it goes. But I would say one out of every three or four emails is a long personal story. Mm. And then I respond, I read them all, and I respond, uh, and I get to gift them your work. <laughs> and it's such a great it's a gift to me to be able to do that. And I have received so much gratitude from people. And these are nurses, frontline workers, delivery people, other healthcare professionals, people on the supply chain, grocery store workers. I mean, it's heavy, heavy, heavy stories that I'm absorbing and that, that I get to alleviate with some meditation. And so I'm grateful to you for just being able to do that. And I know how grateful those folks are for you as well. Well, I I, um, I was really impressed at the time when we shot that a, couple, a few years ago. And, you know, we thought we were shooting it for, for Wanderlust TV, but turns yeah. out we were shooting it to help people during a pandemic that was going to be happening three years later. We just didn't know it. So, (laughs) so thanks so much for facilitating that and putting such great care into the production value of that, because I think it really does stand the test of time. And it is one of the most, it's one of the offerings that I'm most proud of. And I'm so happy when you announced that you were offering that to uh, essential workers. So it's been great. Beautiful, man. Right, well, thank buddy. you. Yeah. It's a great conversation. Um, I think we, we got to everything yeah. for the most part. Have you and Babito connected over Facebook <laughs> over the last 20 years or he whatever not, happened with him? He has not shown up, but uh, <laughs> I do plan to publish this little piece that I wrote about that experience and, and who yeah. knows, maybe he will uh, – surface and we will break bread and make amends at some point yeah we got to do a where are they now addition to this podcast so we know where all the characters your grandfather the gypsy you know all these people so anyways yeah thank you so much and if people want to reach out to you or get a copy of that meditation course what's the best way to, to to contact you yeah my email which is just jeff k at one commune.com jeff k at one commune.com and comes right into my Mac mail here. And mm-hmm. as you know, I respond to everyone. <laughs> and are you, are you on Instagram much? Yeah. Yeah, Twitter? yeah. I'm on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. I will rant and rave on Instagram on a regular yeah. basis. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thank you again. And I look forward to crossing paths with you very soon. Yeah, we surely will. 
Thank you for listening to my interview with Jeff Krasno. I'm so glad that he could join me to share his amazing story of perseverance and connection. And I hope it inspired you to go out and find your North Star. That is, what is the thing that makes your heart sing? That thing that lights you up inside like a Christmas tree. If you want to hear more stories like Jeff's, subscribe to the podcast and check out the archive. I've got so many other amazing interviews with people who started large and small movements, usually against all odds. I'm talking mental health challenges, financial challenges, physical challenges, pretty much any obstacle you can think of, somebody overcame it to start a movement. And usually it was the obstacle itself that was the catalyst for the movement. And if you like what you hear, please rate the podcast. It really does help other listeners discover these inspirational stories. And as always, you can find everything that Jeff and I discussed in the show notes, as well as a transcript of our interview below. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week with a new conversation from the end of the tunnel. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.